0: Your money can do more. Brought to you by Stanlib. Invest for more certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib. Imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider.
1: By the year 2025, the artificial intelligence market is expected to grow to 190 billion US dollars. Before this year is out, we'll be spending over 57 billion dollars. Robotic process automation RPA is set to threaten the livelihoods of 230 million people. That's approximately 9% of the global workforce. Edge computing by next year is expected to reach 6.7% two billion dollars. Quantum computing already being used in the fight against COVID-19 thanks to its ability to easily query, monitor, analyze and act on data is expected to surpass 25 Billion dollars in terms of revenue by 2029. All of this is set to take place within the next few years. It's already happening, in fact. But two decades from now, what will the picture look like for virtual reality, blockchain, the Internet of Things, 5G? Welcome to StanLib's Your Money Can Do More podcast series. My name is Bongani Bingwa. As always, I'm joined by StanLib's chief economist, Kevin Lings. This fourth episode is all about technology trends for the future. How will these affect market behavior? Are there investment opportunities to explore using AI and other disruptive technologies? Today, we have a real treat for you. We are joined by the man who, amongst many achievements, brought Google to South Africa and orchestrated its initial strategy for the continent. Stafford Massey is is a fintech specialist and knows when to get in early when it comes to technological trends. He, more than many, usually knows the next hot ticket. Kevin, the past 18 months have been full of unexpected technological advances. The whole world shifted to meet the demands of a new reality. But are these innovations just a product of the pandemic, or are they here to
2: stay? Hi, Bangani. Yeah, I agree with you. There's a huge array of technologies that have been accelerated uh, over the last year and a half. Some of those technologies have been around for a number of years, and I guess... Certainly in the business sector, you're not always that aware of it or how to utilize it until you're faced with a COVID crisis and suddenly you recognize that you can use these technologies to your advantage. And no doubt those companies have prospered, not just pharmaceutical companies that have been able to develop uh, vaccines very quickly, but also uh, IT companies that can allow you to have uh, virtual meetings and virtual presentations and all kinds of other gadgets that go along with that. And there's no doubt in my mind that a lot of that technology is here to stay. In other words, if I look at some of the developments on the pharmaceutical side, they've learned a lot. I think you're going to see more vaccines being developed over the coming years. And I've got no doubt that they have drawn a lot of confidence from how they were able to develop the COVID vaccines and get those up and running and approved and distributed. So I think this has provided a massive boost the medical industry. And at the same time, if I look at the various IT sectors or even just online trading or online shopping, all of those technologies have moved ahead quite sharply and I think those are also here to stay. I think most companies are going to end up with some sort of hybrid model. In other words, we will go back to work more fully than we are now, but we're not going to be fully back at work. And I think many businesses will allow staff to adapt, to uh, accommodate their own lifestyles, use the technology that is now available. Those technologies, I'm sure, will be further enhanced. And I think this represents a significant and structural change in the way in which we do work, certainly in the services industry. The manufacturing side, the mining side, construction, all of that is a different game. And it's not as if these technologies apply equally to every single sector. And that's critical, I think, to understand from an investment point of view. But there's no doubt that this is a structural break with the past.
1: Stafford, I must ask you the same question. Is there any turning back to what we've adopted since the advent of COVID-19?
0: It's an excellent question. And the way I look at technology is actually taking a look at humanity, which sounds inverse. But, you know, I I feel like technology has leanings. It's got behaviors. And because it's made up of electrons and just from a pure physics perspective, you can kind of tell where this thing is going to go, broadly speaking. I mean, I, I love the analogy of when the water falls into a valley, when the drop goes down, that's its trajectory. I, I can't tell you exactly where it's going to land up, but I can tell you it's broad trajectory of downward. Similar with technology. But I think when you take a look at technology, you've got to take a look at it in kind of 10-year steps. The last decade that we've just come out of was a, a significant adoption of technology. But those trends that you store, the big companies that have emerged, the Facebooks, the Googles, the Apples, you know, these companies, if you take the top five technology companies in the world and you combine them, their net asset value outstrips every single other company listed on every single other index in the entire world. I mean, they just—you, how? What actually? birthed that. What actually made that come to pass? And if you look at the last decade and you take a step back and then you'll find there is these learnings and from these learnings, you'll pick up that this is what you can see what's going to happen for the next decade. So let's just go back and go to 2007. 2007 was a set of events. Three things happened there that I believe dictated what was going to happen between then and where we are today or then and where we were last year. And that is number one is Steve Jobs got up on a stage and showed us the Apple iPhone for the first time. Um, you know, when he got up and he showed us that device, that was a transformative thing that occurred because it wasn't just a piece of technology that it was showing us. It just wasn't just a beautiful phone. It was a device that had an ecosystem attached to it. The notion of having co-creativity personified in your business was suddenly a reality because here yeah, someone was standing up on stage showing a phone and when they showed that phone, not only that, they showed the app store and the combination of that with that phone created an organization that was the largest co-creative personification that we ever. a So, so the iPhone was a massive technological shift in terms of structuring an organization and what technology was capable of doing. When you open it up and allow others to invent with you, that was an amazing thing that we saw on the stage. The second thing that happened in 2007 was urbanization. More human beings lived in cities than not in cities. So we went over that 50% mark. And I think the third thing that was quite profound in that same year was millennials made up more of the workforce than any of the other generations. So the millennials actually started becoming the majority of Of the workforce. So, not the digital immigrants, the digital natives combined with that technological shift and the notion of cities and how we interact as human beings. That spawned what we saw all the way up until probably the beginning of last year. And I think in principle, if you want to know where we're going and what's laying ahead, you've got to think about those things in principle and ask yourself, what's the next three things? You know, if I take a look at it from a technological shift perspective, I do think that a big thing has happened over the last 18 months. Kevin's heard me speak of crypto and Bitcoin because we've done roadshows and stuff and about three or four years ago. And everyone was very, very skeptical, but I think mainstream adoption of cryptography is now becoming a reality. People are buying Bitcoin, organizations, institutions are jumping into this cryptography world. We're hearing things about non-fungible tokens, people putting artwork inside of blockchains. And these terms and these terminologies, we're now spawning a new network. So like the iPhone was shown to us for the first time on a stage, I think this is that new iPhone. So what is that big technological step? I think this is this cryptography and this notion of a decentralized network that allows for sharing of value without any intermediary. It's profound. It's it's phenomenal. It's incredible. And it's going to be quite interesting to see. I think if you take a look at what happened in 2007 from a generational perspective, what I see here is a generational dispersion, not a magnification or a concentration. So we had millennials becoming the majority. But what I see now from a generational perspective is I see more and more people of the older generation being brought brought into the technological space aggressively in a highly accelerated way. People that have never put their credit cards into a website are now doing it for the first time. But these people are not just getting connected to an internet, they're getting connected to disparate species of artificial intelligence. And this is going to change a lot in terms of people's expectations when they acquire services or their products or how they work in an organization. That's going to be a major challenge for us. So the first thing is, is this cryptography network. The second thing is this intergenerational thing. And I think the concentration from an urbanization perspective that we saw in 2007. In principle, we're seeing almost an inverse of that, which is working from home. You know, suddenly everyone's working from home and you're seeing everyone moving towards the suburbs. And that's an interesting thing, but the consequence of that is that means organizations are putting infrastructure into their businesses and investing in technologies that they were going to perhaps invest in in the next 10 to 15 years in terms of remote work and remote enablement. That architecture that enterprises and businesses are putting in place so people can access services externally to that business is fundamentally going to change culture, skills, human resource, and how those business operate in the long term. Essentially, what we see happening out there is what I call AWS moments. Like Amazon took infrastructure that it had, opened it up and allowed others to use that infrastructure and that created Amazon's web services, which is arguably now the most valuable technological company in the entire world. I think that's happening on an aggregate through the notion of working from home because now everyone needs a broadband connection. Everyone needs a laptop to connect from home. Everyone needs to connect to services in the business. So building up that architecture from an enterprise perspective, that's another big step. I mean, I'll give you a statistic. Okta did a study. 55% of the people that were told to go work from home, March, April last year, when the first lockdowns happened, 55% of the people working in the top economies, the top five economies in the EU had never worked from home ever before. Those people never had equipment to connect from home to the office or to the service. And suddenly businesses had to accelerate that, invest in that, put in that infrastructure. And I think that infrastructure investment, the consequences of that will play itself out in decades. So those are the three big things that I'm noticing right now. And I think those are going to be the big currents in the water that that give this orchestra its tempo and its cadence as we move forward.
1: Let's stick on that theme, Stafford. There is the generational divide, but also if we look at global inequality, how scary is it for traditional competitors, traditional industries to look at this uncertain future and feel that already they're being left behind?
0: This is a challenge. I think AI, artificial intelligence, and, and technologies that we have today are superpowers. They really, really are. I mean, the capability that we have today, you found them in comic books when I was a kid, and it was things that we dreamed of, right? So so we have superpowers, <laughs> but the kryptonite of these superpowers is inequality. And I think we've got to be very, very careful because the fitness functions that we give, the capabilities that we build in businesses are more important now than ever before. And I I worry because I find that we are combining a fitness function with these superpowers that we were given in the early 1970s. Milton Friedman got up and he he declared that the sole responsibility of an organization is to derive value for its shareholders. At the time, in the early 70s, that was profound. That was a fitness function that made a lot of sense. But when you take that fitness function and you combine it with these superpowers, you get this hyper-accelerated derivative. And that derivative is CEOs that have concentrated power. Architectures of businesses and exchanges that concentrate wealth to the very top to the few, and combined with these superpowers, you suddenly see CEOs being incentivized by shareholders to do more with less. What we've got to think about on a political level a geopolitical level, a social level. And and that's where I'm trying to lean in a lot is is not think about these tools in a pure Milton Friedman, you know, 1970s way of implementation, but actually thinking of how can we do more what was previously impossible? So yes, we can take the humans that we have and take them out of the so-called jobs that they had before, but we can give them work that was previously not thought about and we can deliver those services. And I do think if you don't do that as a leader, if you don't think about these superpowers in that way, I do think that competition will be your challenge because that's the opportunity right now is to take your assets and take your assets are your people and not to shut down bank branches because you're utilizing technology better but actually taking a look at that physical asset taking a look at those physical people and thinking if I augment these human beings with these superpowers could we create services that were previously unimaginable in the financial services sector could we do that and I think leaders that think that way will create new businesses new offerings and I think they'll free up humanity from the so-called notion of jobs and this old way of looking at things from an economic perspective. I mean, look at Amazon as a business. That's that's the future. And and, and we, can't, we shouldn't worry about that. I, I feel like if we do run out of jobs and we do land up in this predetermined dystopia, it won't be because of the machines or automation or AI. I think it will be because of a lack of imagination on behalf of leadership.
1: For the good of mankind, Kevin, sounds like a counterintuitive strategy as far as investment is concerned, but we do know that ethics matter, value systems matter for the modern investor. But how at the same time does the intrepid investor not get swept by every wind?
2: It's critical, um, Bongani. If you look at all of these technologies that Stafford's talking about, there's a myriad of them, right? And, and there are all kinds of technologies that get hyped up in terms of where could they ultimately go? And you can really get caught up with that, and it can start to confuse you as to where should I invest? What's the next big thing? So, from our perspective, there are a couple of things that would guide, and I would kind of focus on three things. The one is try and be aware of technology; it's critical. Don't assume that oh, there's something new coming along; it's not going to impact me. It's decades away. Technology implementation can move very fast, and it can catch you out. So, try be as aware possible. The second thing is consult. There are a lot of experts like Stafford out there that you can talk to and they are available and they will engage and and give you their perspective on what technologies are really valuable and what technologies are working and also give you an idea of what's at the cutting edge so that you're looking at older new technologies and the real cutting edge as well. So consult widely. The third thing though is that you've got to bring all of that back to the financial fundamentals. In other words, is this business going to make some money? It's all very well getting caught up in the hype and you can say well, over X period of time, this may or may not be profitable. But we've got an objective right now, and that is to ensure that the investor is rewarded for the risk they're taking. And so there is a tendency within the asset management industry to be on purpose a little bit behind. In other words, you don't want to jump into the very next thing, the very latest thing, because potentially it just peters out and many technologies have done that. And many companies that have embraced these technologies have failed. And there's still many technology companies that may make no money whatsoever. So you probably want to be a little bit behind, get more evidence that this is a proven technique, proven technology. It's got legroom. It's going to be adopted. It's, it can deliver a bottom line return and then start to feed it into the portfolio over time so that you've got a higher conviction around this company before you actually put it into the portfolio. And I know that that can sound a little bit antiquated or you're not right at the cutting edge. And many clients would say to you, oh, this latest technology has come out. Take Bitcoin. Have you got Bitcoin into your fund? And those things have got to be carefully considered because it's not just about the latest thing and it may well be going through some sort of explosive growth, but is it going to be around in the next five years, 10 years? And so it's finding that balance, which is, it sounds like a logical thing, but it's not that easy to do because ultimately there's the risk that the fund manager also gets caught up with the emotion of it, the hype, the latest thing, particularly if that's fund manager likes tech and likes gadgets and they can get a new gadget and think this is the next big thing so you've got to guard against that as well coming up later in this podcast which of these technologies do you invest in which ones are going to be adopted much quicker and it's very difficult for the human brain to digest all of that yet we found that if you can construct a range of artificial intelligences and then overlay that into a selection of equities you end up actually with a with a very healthy portfolio that actually performs exceptionally well.
1: If you sometimes find yourself wondering if life's getting a bit too routine, you're not alone. Your money's also been letting its mind wander. It's been thinking about trying new things, a new investment style perhaps. Your money can do more with Stanlib's multi-style equity funds. Invest to earn more returns at stanlib.com forward slash more. Stanlib, Imagine more. Stanlip Asset Management is an authorised financial services provider. Stafford, let's take that even further. Elizabeth Holmes dropped out of Stanford at 19 to start Theranos, grew its value to $9 billion. We know, of course, the rest of the story. She's now been charged with massive fraud. Jury selection has begun. She could face up to 20 years in prison. How does the investor spot The next Elizabeth Holmes...
0: It's a difficult one, and I think the investors that you know invested in, in that, I, I think what Kevin says is so important. I think looking back at fundamentals again, and it is a game around looking at the core fundamentals, but at the same time, looking at your appetite for risk. We do tend to do that with technology. We overestimate the impact. We get enthralled by the engineers. We look at that and we go, whoa, 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 and then we go, this is going to be really big. But then what we also simultaneously, we underestimate its impact in the long run. The question is, can you make a big bet on something that's not going to be there? Now, I think as much as we have a story like that, there are so many other stories like the Zuckerbergs, the Larry and Sergei's, you know, the founders of all these major organizations that did build things that at the time we were skeptical, but look at the impact that they've had and look at their value today. So it's about getting that balance right. But I, I yes, I don't get enthralled. Look, I, I've always been, and Kevin knows this, I've been a Bitcoin maximalist, but I live underneath the deck, right? So I, I see how the engine is made. And because I can see how the engine is made, I tend to see things a little bit ahead of the time. And, and I can see, example, of your blockchain and Bitcoin and all these things, it's definitely not a fact. Like it's definitely not going away. You know, it's, I, I remember this with the internet um, when I worked at, I remember coming from Israel, working at Telcom in the early 90s. And I remember the internet when it was DARPA and ARPA nodes. And I was luckily part of a team that oversaw those defense network nodes. This is when the internet was really small. And we had like one node of the internet and Telcom, because of the monopoly, had full oversight over that node. I'll never forget, I was privileged, but the internet had no interface. I was running around telling people how big the internet was going to be. And people were like, what? No, man. And I used to show them a text, a VI screen. And then the internet got a GUI. You know, Mozilla came along and we had the first browser. So you could get actually a graphical interface. And we ran around in the in the middle to late 90s telling everyone how big this was going to be. And when we showed people, people say, okay, Show me. And then what happened was we would take the towel, put it on the desk, we'd shove the software in it, and it would eat up the software. And then, you know, we'd say, hang on, hang on, hang on. And then, like, the web page would kind of unfold and, and resolve itself on the screen over about a half an hour. We click play on the video and the video would take three weeks to download and the sound card drive in. Very, very complicated. We were telling everyone, this is going to change mankind. This is going to be really big. But when you looked at it, it was complicated, arcane, the domain of the few. And like, no, I don't understand. People ran away. But then people catch on to it. And then it's way too big. And then suddenly it has that long-term impact. When it gets its plateau, it comes out of that and, 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 it, and it has its societal impact. And the question is, where do you find yourself at which point? I mean, Bitcoin is in that same world today. When I run around and talk about Bitcoin, when Kevin and I spoke about Bitcoin for the first time, even I, there was a lot of a head shaking. Because if I showed them a crypto wallet, it was ugly and it was weird. But you got to look at the amount of human beings cascading into particular spaces. And that's where I find the trend. And coming back to Kevin's deposits. It is tricky because technology moves really, really fast. And adoption of technology is moving even faster. I mean, Accenture came out, I think it was last year or the year before, they came out with a benchmark and they said well if you want to benchmark yourself as an organization in terms of rates of innovation well here it is and this is what it was they said whatever you're doing today from an innovations perspective as a business needs to represent 75 of revenue in the next 36 months and that's the benchmark that they put up and when you put that benchmark up it's quite a shocker you know you're thinking to yourself wait a minute as a that business, quickly as it yeah in the next 36 months Can whatever the project you're working off now, when it goes live and it becomes available, can it represent 75% of revenues? And it may be a portfolio of products and a portfolio of innovation, but can it represent 75% of turn in the next 36 months? If it doesn't, you're falling behind. That's the challenge that technology presents to large organizational structures, but it's great opportunities for entrepreneurs like myself.
1: Let's talk about those investment opportunities, Kevin, because there's a lot to be afraid of, there's a lot to be cautious about, but taking the negativity aside, where are the opportunities?
2: So from my perspective, Bungani, obviously you've got to be uh, somewhat uh, circumspect about charismatic people in themselves. So if you go back to Elizabeth Holmes, she certainly came across very well. And I think people bought into her as a person and didn't really investigate the technology behind it. And quite frankly, that can happen in any industry. It's not peculiar to, to tech. You get charismatic people in every sector and you can buy into that and you've got to be careful about that. The second thing is obviously to to what we call kick the tires. In other words, try and understand what the nuts and bolts of this is. Even if it sounds out of your normal domain of expertise, you've got to take the time and effort to understand what that technology is about. How does it really work? Try cut through the jargon, try cut through the noise. And if the person that represents that technology, the business represents that technology, if they can't explain it to you in simple terms, then ask yourself questions about what is it they're trying to hide? What are they trying to be very obscure about? What are they not willing to disclose? And I guess a lot of companies that we come across fall back on this idea that I can't tell you too much because this is intellectual property and I don't want to reveal too much because it's competitive edge. Well, to me, that's a red flag because we're an investor. We need to understand the nuts and bolts. We're not going to take that technology and go and share it with anybody else. But equally, we're not going to invest in this if we can't understand what it is that we investing in. And I think that every single company, every single industry has the ability to implement technology in their sphere. Some sectors more than others, but everybody has got the ability to look at innovation, to look at research and development, to look at other sectors and see what they're doing and adapt that and transform that into helping their sector. So I think this is of significance to every every company and therefore significance to every investor. But you can't move away from the fundamentals of investing? Does it make business sense? Does it contribute to the bottom line? Is it sustainable? Are there details with regards to a business plan, the outlook? Is there a security of the technology? Is this simply a technology that every single person within a matter of months is going to be able to adopt and implement into their business? And therefore, the price of that is going to evaporate very quickly. Or are there technologies that perhaps are unique to a particular business that they can capitalize on. So I think that it's not as if there's one-size-fits-all type of opportunities. There's opportunity in every single sector but I think the environment demands of us that we investigate things much more thoroughly than we have in the past.
1: And then of course you can be thrown a complete curveball even if all those fundamentals are in place. Stafford we're seeing tech trends in China responsible for the largest listed company on the JSC and Yet value, enormous value, can easily be wiped out by the simplest pen stroke of the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, We've seen regulatory uh, tightening. Does this present an opportunity or a serious threat?
0: I think it's both. I'll tell you why, because I think the Chinese government has just taken a particular stance. And I, I think you've got to be really careful now when you're looking at the Far East, uh, specifically China. I think there's almost a philosophical change that's happened. And, and uh, the argument that they have is they want to bring more equality into their society, right? So they want to stop this mass concentration of wealth. They want to even the playing fields, etc. And that's the motivation behind it and they're exercising extreme control. Um, I think this in principle is something that we've got to be aware of. I mean, uh, the rate of pace change of technology is definitely forcing political leaders and uh, regulators to get involved. And those things are the challenges and that's what you've got to be really careful of as an investor is making sure that when you're looking at are you at the cutting edge? I think Kevin's talking about the fundamentals. Absolutely. There's another aspect of the fundamentals. Is, is this so cutting edge? You know, does is there a regulatory framework that underpins it? Or is this pushing the boundaries to such an extent where, you know, you may have some regulators stepping up and governments coming down and, and either stopping this from happening or incumbents influencing certain political leaders and you see changing of rules and laws associated with it so you've got to be careful in that regard i think that's what china reflects
1: kevin how does Stanley promise to hold your hand in these choppy waters
2: so, from Ghani, if you listen to what Stafford's been talking about, what you recognise out of a lot of what he said is that at times the developments in technology can become overwhelming. That you can kind of get caught up in a myriad of different uh, ideas, and all of them leading you in different directions. But in the end, you've got to you've got to construct an investment portfolio, and you've got to meet the client's needs. So, one of the things that we've been doing now for a couple of years, and I must say, it's 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 the Delivering very good results, and that is to introduce artificial intelligence into the investment process. And we do that in a specific group of funds. So it's not as if we're just doing artificial intelligence. We're taking some fundamentals. So for example, looking at where we are in the business cycle, is the economy in expansion mode, in a contraction mode? So still understanding the fundamentals, but then introduce a significant component of artificial intelligence in order to eradicate some of the emotion that goes along with investing and and, and eradicate or limit exactly what uh, Stafford's highlighted that which of these technologies do you invest in? Which ones are going to be adopted much quicker? And it's very difficult for the human brain to digest all of that. Yet we found that if you can construct a range of artificial intelligences and overlay that into a selection of equities, you end up actually with a with a very healthy portfolio that actually performs exceptionally well. So in effect, fact, what you're doing is you're combining two styles of investing. One is called active investing, where the fund manager is making a very active decision on a daily basis. And the other is more passive investing, which tends to be more rules-based or index type investing. And if you combine those two, then I think you actually end up in this world in a very good outcome. And the fund I just want to highlight is called the Stanlib Enhanced Multi-Style Equity Fund. And I know that's a a long phrase, but it describes exactly what it's doing. It's a multi-style equity. It's not just a fundamentals not just an index based fund it's a equity fund so it is somewhat higher risk than simply investing in an income fund or a money market fund so it is higher risk it's for somebody who's certainly got a longer term investment arises, arising and, and at times yes it can obviously come under pressure but at times it does spectacularly well and I think the beauty of this is that it's a, it's a modern fund for the current era. It's using the latest technologies, it's not shy away from that. It's not a old-style asset management style that says this is the way we've done it. This is the way we've always done it. This is the best way. It's about adopting and adapting the latest technologies to get the best investment outcome. And I think that this fund proves that it's entirely feasible and and I would urge people to have a look at it. Stafford
1: Massey, really really been fascinating uh, to just tap into your fantastic mind. Thank you so much for being a part of this podcast. Podcast. Kevin, of course, as always, uh, my co pilot, has been absolutely insightful. That brings us to the end of another thought provoking episode. Join us again for Stanlib's Your Money Can Do More podcast series.
0: Invest for more certainty, more returns, and more impact. Stanlib. Imagine more. Stanlib Asset Management is an authorized financial services provider.